This is the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. We hope you guys enjoyed today's conversation. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast. Andy Miller coming to you from Washington, D.C. And those of you who are watching on YouTube can see that that is the White House right behind me. I'm here with Wesley Biblical Seminary as we are hosting classes at the Institute for Religion and Democracy, which if I can't really point it out here, but it's just a block and a half away, just a short walk. And I was on my run this morning. I thought it might be an interesting way to introduce the podcast today. Thanks for coming along. And really, I appreciate all the feedback that I've received from a variety of people about the podcast, particularly in the last few months. I just want to encourage you, if you haven't joined my email list, if you do, you'll get a free resource that is an exegetical tool to help you interpret scripture and then use it in your own preaching and teaching. So it's available to you. Get a free link to this PDF if you go to andymillerthe3rd.com. I'd love for you to check that out. You can just join the email list there. And then I share over, um, regular content two or three times a month of things that are going on that I'm, I'm producing or interviews that I have. And today I have Keith Boyette coming on the podcast who is the president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. And it's the group that is leading towards a new future in the United Methodist Church as it will eventually become at least one branch of it, the Global Methodist Church. I love this conversation. And I think it's incredibly helpful for all movements who are dealing with the challenges of human sexuality and how this expresses itself in the church and how a church can best witness in the world. So I hope you, you will check out this podcast. Thanks so much for coming along. I want to thank Keith Waters and Bill Roberts and an anonymous donor for sponsoring this podcast. Keith Waters is with WPO Development. Bill Roberts is a financial planner and an anonymous donor is an anonymous donor. So I'm so thankful for folks to help time make some of the expenses of getting this podcast off the ground happen. And um, again, Andy Miller coming to you from Washington, D.C. God bless you. Have a good day. Welcome to the More to the Story podcast with Dr. Andy Miller. I come to you from Wesley Biblical Seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, where I serve as a vice president for academic affairs and professor of theology. I have had a keen interest and an eye towards what is happening in the United Methodist Church, in part because I have a variety of friends I went through seminary with. My in-laws have been actively involved in that church, and I have heard about the movement in the United Methodist Church for a while, and many of you have heard this. Now, we also had a conversation with Mark Tooley on my former podcast called Captain's Corner. It's in my archives as well. But today, we are blessed to have on the podcast with us, Reverend Keith Boyette, who serves as the president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Keith, we so admire you. Thanks for coming to this podcast. Well, thank you so much, Andy. It's a joy to be with you, and I'm grateful for the invitation. Yeah, well, we're, we're certainly glad to hear from you who are at the forefront of this battle. We've been praying for you. And look, look, there's just like certain people have gifts that God has given them and experiences. And I'm just laying my cards out on the table here. God has equipped you for this time. And we thank God for your leadership in the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Well, I say that um, journeying with God is a great adventure. You never know what he's got around the corner. He's always laying that next step. And um, our calling is to be faithful, to take the next step he makes available. It's wonderful that you can look back over a lifetime and see the handprints and footprints of God. Uh, but certainly um, he has woven together lots of experiences, relationships, uh, given me gifts and abilities 
that uh, I believe he is using in this day. I pray he's using in this day. Amen. I pray I'm being a faithful steward of them in these days. Yeah. Well, I, in, just so you all know, I think you get the idea. The Wesleyan Covenant Association is, is like similar, as I say in this podcast, the Wesleyan Orthodox branch of Methodism. And and we'll get into the details of what that means and what the Global Methodist Church is. But Keith, kind of with what you're saying there, what is it in your experiences that as you're looking back and seeing how God has prepared you, what are those experiences that have prepared you for this moment personally? Well, I could I could probably do an entire podcast, so I will okay. give you a short version. Uh, God saw fit to have me born in, born into a, a deeply committed family. So that's number one, family okay. deeply committed to the Lord. Um, uh, he enabled me to come to faith at a very early age and to yeah. be very serious about my faith. Uh, for whatever reason, as I sought... Um, where he would have me uh, be vocationally. Uh, when I was a teenager, uh, he led me into politics and then into the practice of law. And I practiced law for 13 years as a trial attorney in Richmond, Virginia, where I was uh, a deeply committed lay leader in my local church, taught Sunday school, very invested in small groups, uh, very desirous of maturing in the Christian faith. In February, on February 4th of 1991, God called me to leave the practice of law to pastor a church for him. I was a, uh, a senior shareholder, director of a law firm, chair of its litigation section at that time. I responded to that call and went to Asbury Seminary where I had a whole host of other experiences that God has certainly woven into what I have done. Um, he then enabled me to be part of pastoring a 150-year-old church and then planting a brand new faith community in Spotsylvania, Virginia, where I was the pastor for 19 years of a, of a new church plant. And during that time, he, he enabled me to serve on the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church, which is the church's Supreme Court. Uh, so, you weave together that legal background, the theological training and the ministry, the pastoral ministry, um, the experiences I've had with church law and church organization. Um, I think you can see how yeah. all of those things come to uh, uh, be combined in this current season of my life as president of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Wow. And this is it. I mean, dealing with constitutional issues as it relates to how some even how the United Methodist Church has been incorporated, what its bylaws are. I mean, that has been in part the battle over the last 40 years is like figuring out what these various clauses mean, where they are, and then how you get to that. And then much less trying to figure out how you resolve some of that. So a lot of my listeners come from the Salvation Army or from maybe smaller denominations within the Wesleyan holiness tradition. Could, this is a hard thing to summarize, but could you summarize what what has led the yeah, Methodist, where, uh, what has led the Methodist Church to where it is today? Sure. So as perhaps many of your listeners uh, would know the United Methodist Church came into existence in, um, in I'm sorry, I, no, I no a, problem. I had a phone call coming in, and uh, <laughs> um, uh, so let me. I'll just hopefully you can edit that part out. No problem. Yep. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so as many of your viewers and listeners would know, in 1968, uh, the United Methodist Church was formed out of a merger of the Methodist Church and the Evangelical United Brethren Church, uh, two Wesleyan movements. Uh, and in that merger, um, we, we began to wrestle as a church with how we would do theology, how we would view human sexuality and um, how we would define marriage, what would be our ordination standards. Very early, uh, the church has experienced conflict basically since its very beginning around these topics. And literally every four years at our general conference, which is the global decision-making body for the United Methodist Church, various attempts have been made to change the historic position of the United Methodist Church, which of course defines marriage as, between, as being between one man and one woman and defines our ordination standards as requiring us to be faithful in heterosexual marriage and chaste in singleness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that battle has raged. Um, uh, it first was fought out legislatively in the general conference by persons making petitions uh, to change those disciplinary provisions those petitions have always been defeated. Mm. Uh, when, when that became um, unsuccessful to change it legislatively, then the strategy was to try to attack those provisions uh, judicially by bringing cases before the Judicial Council to have the Judicial Council adopt the changes that people wanted. That happened to be during the eight-year period that I served on the Judicial Council. The Judicial Council uni uniformly rejected those challenges, affirmed the, the teachings of the United Methodist Church, their constitutionality. So when that was unsuccessful, then uh, the strategy was adopted of what I would call ecclesiastical disobedience, mm -hmm. where actions were taken in violation of the discipline as a way of trying to highlight what the, the persons who took those actions would have maintained were unjust or, or wrong in their eyes. Um, for a season, the systems of the church worked properly. And when those actions occurred, there were church uh, disciplinary proceedings that occurred that held people accountable. But over time, uh, bishops, uh, some bishops began to uh, align with those who were engaging in ecclesiastical disobedience, so they would not then hold people accountable, uh, and the level of disobedience increased. Um, at some annual conferences voted disagreement with the discipline of the church. Those conferences weren't held accountable, and so the conflict just increased. I'm almost done. Oh, this is so, great. So in 2019, well, in 2016, at the General Conference in Portland, Oregon, it was very clear once again that the historic teachings of the church were going to be reaffirmed. Um, and it also became clear that we were at a, at a, a loggerhead, that, that there was an irreconcilable conflict, that this was not going to go away. And so... Uh, the General Conference established a commission on the way forward, which was supposed to determine how were we, we were going to resolve this once and for all. 
We had a special general conference in 2019. The solution of at least some people was something called the One Church Plan. My summary of that is that each person would have been permitted to do what seemed right in their own eyes. Obviously, they probably others would not characterize it that huh. way. But, Sounds um, like judges. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, but that was defeated. And once again, the historic position and teachings of the church were reaffirmed by the General Conference. Um, it was a very uh, vitriolic General Conference. Uh, the, the strife was on display. And in the aftermath of that, um, it became clear to people that uh, if we continued as we had for more than 50 years down this pathway, that we would tear the church apart eventually. And so there was a decision made to see if we could find a, a process that would lead essentially to the amicable separation of the church. Um, and I certainly can go into more of that. But that kind of gives you an overview from um, basically 1968 right up until 2019. We've been in this battle. Uh, one of the things that makes the United Methodist context different from other denominations in the United States is that we are a global church. Um, about half of our membership is located outside the United States. It's predominantly in Africa, but also in uh, the Philippines and in Europe. And the overwhelming majority, super majority of uh, Methodists outside the United States are theologically conservative and committed to the historic positions of the church. And, and so they have, they have been a major part of holding the line the other mainline denominations in the U.S. are largely U.S.-centric. They don't have international members. And so they've been much more impacted by the influence of the culture around them. Right. What would it be like if it was just the United States? What would the numbers be like for the Methodist Church regarding this move away from the, what your discipline? Yeah, clearly in the United States, uh, the... the uh, journey, the, the direction has been uh, increasingly progressive or liberal uh, yeah. to use terms that are, are, are bandied about. Uh, and I would say that uh, somewhere, the numbers are somewhere bet or between 60 and 65% of the U.S. delegates. Now, there's a big difference yeah. between those who go and represent the church at General Conference and the rank and file members in the pew, um, my perception is that uh, lay people continue to be largely, or at least majority, theologically conservative, but that the clergy of the church in the United States are majority theologically liberal. Right. Interesting. It's one of the challenges that comes, and, and I've addressed this within the context of the Salvation Army, my denomination, but it's certainly true with, with other locations as well, that when an institution is formed and they develop some type of system for, for ordering their life together, some polity or governance model, what ends up happening is you come to a common agreement. And at some point, every person buys into that agreement. 
Um, and, and in my denomination, that comes in the context of becoming a soldier, a member of the Salvation Army. You, you say, I believe these things. I'm a part of this movement. Uh, that doesn't mean there can't be some institutional changes that we can do, uh, do some things better or worse through the years. But the essence of our faith, our theology, is centered in a common covenant. And what, what I've said is that like, cer certainly there are people within my denomination and most denominations that want to see a movement towards a different source of biblical revelation that would allow there to be a liberalization of on human sexuality. Like, I think that's pretty, pretty like people want that to happen. My challenge to them is this, and I'm curious if this is what you see in IMF churches that when people make that move, I believe they're the ones who have stepped away. They're the ones who are moving um, and it has to be incredibly frustrating. And, and really, we're just starting to feel that in the Salvation Army. How have you dealt with those, those inconsistencies or those challenges in, uh, through the years yourself? Well, you're, you're right, Andy, that um, um, in the United Methodist Church, when you become uh, an ordained elder in the church, um, you have to answer certain questions. They're historic questions that have been asked of Methodists since the days of John Wesley. Among them is the question, have you studied, do you understand, and will you follow our doctrine and discipline, basically? And every United Methodist person who is ordained an elder has had to respond, yes, and I will, to those yeah. questions. And so um, I regard that as a covenant that we have entered into. And like you, I, I believe that... Um, Persons may have a different perspective on certain practices or teachings of the church, uh, but if they have said yes to those things, they have said, I will live within the teachings and doctrine and discipline of the church until the church by its ordinary means changes those doctrines or teachings. I don't have the ability as an individual to say, well, I am going to turn my back on that and I have freedom to do whatever I want. Um, if, if I cannot remain within the covenant that I have made, the choice I am faced with is to surrender my credentials, withdraw from the ministry and step away from being a United Methodist pastor. And of course, our, our polity has ways in which those who would want to see a change in some particular can legitimately seek that change. And it has always been my contention, people ought to be free to propose, you know what, we think there should be a different definition of marriage. Right. I do agree with that, but they ought to be free to make that argument to right. our general conference, free to submit a petition, uh, free to advocate that in the debate at general conference. And then general conference takes a vote. And um, if they don't win, they, they need to continue to comply with the teachings of the church if, that, um, if, if, if they're not going to depart the church because of conscientious disagreement. The problem, and, and so you would think that persons who are... are um, not wanting to continue to abide by the United Methodist Church's doctrine and discipline, uh, who have been unsuccessful repeatedly in trying to change that, that they would say it's time for us to move on 
perhaps to another uh, part of the body of Christ, another sure. denomination that has already adopted the positions that we're advocating for. And uh, but they don't do that. They have not right. done. That. They've seen this as a a cause that they need to continue to fight. And as I said, they've become more disruptive and dysfunctional in that, which has led to chaos, um, you know, in, in the United Methodist Church. Um, so, yeah, I, I frequently get asked in this context, you, you are part of a part of the church that has repeatedly prevailed in this debate. The, the discipline of the United Methodist Church currently aligns with what you believe. Why is it that you and others like you are the ones who are departing from right. the United Methodist Church to start something new? Why is it those who have repeatedly failed to make a change being left in charge of the church? Yeah. And and that and the simple answer to that is that um, where where there is no accountability, where where there's no means. Well, first they have evidence they are not going to leave. They don't they they don't want to leave. They want to continue this battle. So our choice and, and there's no accountability for them. Right. So our is to our choice is either to stay in a church that is badly broken and dysfunctional, and that there is no hope of resolution and reconciliation and healing in or to say uh, we have done the best we can to advocate for what we believe that we're firmly committed to it's time for us to step away from that and to create that which will be wholesome and um, ordered and capable of advancing the gospel and not inwardly focused on these Endless debates and conflicts. Right. It's irreconcilable differences at this point, particularly theologically, as it relates to the doctrine of revelation. Now, here's one of the interesting things. Like for me, now, I think this is where I would be. If my denomination today changed its understanding of revelation and said, we no longer affirm scripture's authority over the individual believer or the life of the church, and then changed on any host of, of, of doctrinal statements and lifestyle commitments— I would see at that point, I would be sad. <laughs> the, the the church would have left me at that point, and I would then consequently, institutionally, organizationally, leave the church. Like I would, that that's a step I would take. I would, I would, even if that meant my livelihood, uh, uh, my commitment to the gospel and to the work of God in the world would would call me to do that. Um, and I'm I'm not. It's easy for me to say that in this context because, well, at this point, my denomination's held in the Orthodox lines, as has yours. So it's like I'm telling somebody else to leave. That's what it sounds like. That's not what I'm saying exactly. I'm just if these are the beliefs that you hold, uh, is this a healthy place to be? And it's not. And ultimately, that's where you are. And I want to get to this discipline issue because the enforcement is is really a key thing like you can have the right laws written all day if they're not enforced it's not a society and the same thing is true with within the life of the church and i'm beginning to see this in the salvation army where there in other methodist like smaller denominations where you have you have a policy you have the theology you have it articulated but then even leaders uh, equivalents to bishops that, that you might have in your denomination take on a whole nother line at some point they need to be held accountable and if they're not being held accountable, we are losing that which unites us. It Correct. And, and so, so to your point, 
the the failure in United Methodist polity is that there is no way to hold bishops accountable to um, their consecration as bishops. Mm. So if they, the way we elect bishops occurs regionally. So um, in the southeastern part of the United States, we vote for our who our bishops are. They serve in the southeast. They're part of a college of bishops in the southeast. And uh, they relate to one another. And so when a complaint is filed against a bishop, it is their college of bishops that handles that complaint. Human nature being what it is, um, you know, you, you, they, they have historically bent over backwards to support one another. There is no way for the church at large to hold them accountable. So, for example, in 2016, the Western jurisdiction elected a practicing lesbian uh, as a bishop, um, Karen Olivito. Uh, her election was challenged and, and the, the case went to the Judicial Council of the United Methodist Church. I argued that case on behalf of those who were challenging her election. The Judicial Council held under church law that it was unlawful for her to be consecrated a bishop and directed that this be dealt with uh, disciplinarily. Okay. Here, here we are in 2021, five years later, and she has not been removed as a bishop, even though the Judicial Council said her consecration was unlawful. So that just illustrates that the church is broken, unable to hold itself accountable to its own doctrines and discipline. So you put your uh, former like litigator hat on. So you, you, it's almost as if there isn't a rule of law anymore. That's right. That's right. We are lawless. Um, now the church is working in some other areas in spite of that. But when this is the fundamental issue that occupies and takes up all the atmosphere in the church, um, um, those other areas are also adversely impacted. So mm -hmm. it impacts people's commitment to their local church. It, you, you would, I mean, I, I'm a person who, who from my earliest days firmly believed in the necessity of tithing, okay? And yeah. so I, I have always tithed whether I happen to like the pastor that was appointed to serve me or not. Yeah, uh, sure. It's God's money. It's not my money. It's not, you know, and so, but, but because there's this brokenness, it affects people's willingness to give for the ministries of the church. And so that ultimately impacts the ability of the church, the United Methodist Church, to be the instrument of God to share the gospel with the world and to do acts of mercy and justice and on and on and on. Uh, it, it weakens the church. And, and after a while, people say, uh, well, the church no longer stands for what it says it stands for. How can I how can I have confidence in this church? Um, how can I have confidence in its leadership? And, 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 and to those who are, are not Christians, I mean, they see what, what is happening as the height of hypocrisy. You know, you, 
fun thing, but you're yeah. doing something else. And yeah. why do I want to be part of a group like that? Yeah, you know? sure. So, so now that we'll make a transition here to what's happening now. Um, let me see if I can summarize and then you correct me whatever I, facts I get wrong. <laughs> so there was a group that formed uh, called the Wesleyan Covenant Association a couple of years ago, and it was made up of leaders all around. And you in, ended up becoming the institutional kind of like executive of that group. But churches would would be a part of that or association, which was helping to connect Orthodox Wesleyan groups around uh, around the world. And then that's then leading into the announcement of this group that will is or will be that's where i need your help the global methodist church which is a new expression of the church and there's been there's been an agreement rather than that, that comes in reality be interested to hear from you that separates groups and then there is like a some financial considerations so that the orthodox followers of christ in the united methodist church can start a new denomination and honestly i see this as an incredibly exciting time and i want to talk about that in a minute but Correct me if I had if I missed anything or I went over things too quickly there. No, I think uh, that is a really good nutshell kind of description of what has transpired. Um, when the Wesleyan Covenant Association was formed in October of 2016, it had three primary purposes. One was to contend for the Christian faith as it has been historically uh, pronounced and, and practiced uh, in the Wesleyan tradition to, to encourage those who hold to that position, to give them courage and boldness in moving forward, and to prepare for whatever, you know, might be necessary as we went forward. Well, uh, after the events that we've just talked about, it became clear. Let's say that at the 2019 General Conference, instead of reaffirming the historic teachings, the proposal to adopt the one church plan had prevailed. Well, that would have been a clear sign along the lines of what you said earlier, that it was time for those of us who held to a historic position to, to depart from the church. And we would have, we would have done that by forming a new denomination. Um, when, when 2019 and the aftermath showed the dysfunction in the United Methodist Church, and it became clear that we were gonna have to, all of us, all United Methodists, we're gonna have to consider amicable separation. That is when um, the protocol was negotiated. I was part of the team that negotiated that protocol, and it would permit new expressions of Methodism to emerge from what is currently the United Methodist Church, one of which would be what we call the post-separation United Methodist Church, which would have a liberalized sexual ethic, another of which would be the global Methodist Church, which would continue to adhere to the historic Christian teachings in the Wesleyan tradition. And um, the Wesleyan Covenant Association has been, I like to use the term, we've been the midwife. Okay. Shepherd, the birth of this new expression of Methodism. It is in formation. We haven't legally formed it and begun operating, but um, we do have a transitional leadership council made up of clergy and laity, men and women um, from all around the world. And I'm the chairperson of that Transitional Leadership Council. And um, sometime in the next year or so, uh, we, we're, we're, our goal would be to have the protocol adopted by General Conference, which would occur in August, September of 2022. And at that point, the Global Methodist Church would begin 
to operate. Wow. It, it, just think of this, this excitement for this, this period for people like my in-laws, Don and Brenda Adams, who serve in leadership in South Georgia with the um, Western Covenant Association and gone to general conferences and fought and loved at the same time. Like to have opportunity to have a church that explicitly is connected to Orthodox Christian teaching. Um, but it's also an opportunity, Keith, I'm interested to, I, to reshape some things that might have gotten out of line in other areas. Um, I'm curious what else might change in the global Methodist church beyond uh, affirming. Uh, I, I know you, you're, it's not like you're the, if you're in the Salvation Army, you can make this decision. You'd be the, you could be the general, right? But it, I, I understand that there'll be a process by which these things are adopted. But uh, what do you imagine might change in this future church? Sure. Uh, and and, and you know, we, we say that the human sexuality issue is just the presenting issue. It's what right. has healed the deep uh, fractures in the church. And I, I submit that every generation has to fight these battles. Who, who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he God? Is he Lord? Um, you know, are we uh, a subject to his lordship? What is the Bible? Is it the word of God? What authority does it have? What are the, the parameters in which we are to interpret the word of God? Uh, and, and, um, and so it just happens to be in our generation that this is being fought out over and around how we define marriage and how we define ordination standards. But the deeper issues are first, uh, the United Methodist Church ha has adopted and has greatly expanded a commitment to theological pluralism, yeah. which, which basically allows different beliefs to adhere in the same body, which leads to a lot of this fracturing. Um, we are committed, the Global Methodist Church is committed to the core foundational doctrines of the church universal. Amen. And so grounded in the historic creeds and confessions of faith, as then given voice through um, the classic doctrine uh, documents of Methodism, the Articles of Religion and the Confession of Faith, and um, the Wesley Wesley sermons and, and those sorts of things. So we have we have a theological alignment, which um, says there are basically basic core doctrines that are not subject to disagreement. If you are part of this church, right. Um, we can have disagreements within those broad boundaries, right. but those set the, the guardrails, basically, number one. Number two, the, the church, the United Methodist Church, over its history has become much more institutional, much more bureaucratic. Um, it has developed a huge infrastructure that the local churches are having to support. And, and yet it's not getting the return in terms of ministry that all of that is, is costing to keep up. So we believe in a much um, um, leaner, more streamlined church structure that is more focused from the grassroots level up instead of being top heavy, directing things from the top down. Um, and so that, that wow. works out that works out in all kinds of ways. Uh, it affects how we, we view connectional funding. Um, it, it affects how uh, laity are involved in, in 
the ministry in their local church and the local church gets to define its mission field and how it's going to reach that mission field. It, it, it means we have a more permission giving environment and we state the broad principles, but you as a local church determine how you're going to meet your, your obligation to your mission field. And you don't have to go through layers of approval in order to get permission to do that. It means that uh, church planting and church revitalization and church development is much more locally um, situated rather than being uh, dictated from on high. Um, mm -hmm. And so, so all of this is intended to create more of a movement than a, a bureaucracy and institution because uh, some of the struggles we have had in the United Methodist Church have related to uh, the fact that our bishops have a life tenure. Mm. Uh, we, we will have term limited uh, bishops so that um, that kind of addresses some of the power dynamics. And we, we are reimagining the office of bishop to be much more apostolic and entrepreneurial in its focus and not so much uh, consumed with administrative uh, responsibilities so that the bishop becomes more of a visionary, vision casting, mentor, um, uh, developer of pastors and churches, uh, keeps the church more focused outwardly uh, on, on what, you know, what is to occur. Um, we, we, um, we have focused on how um, we, we want to simplify and make more theologically consistent the way in which we order ministry, the ordained ministry. Um, and so we've made a number of changes in that area that we believe put us uh, more um, in line with where the church historically has been in those areas. Um, so there's so many things. Yeah. Our, our focus, by the way, I, I would say, you know, the primary mission of the church is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, and, and, um, uh, and yet um, the, the church has woefully failed in that disciple making priority in, in, in the recent, in recent decades. And so we have given a lot of attention to what we call transformative discipleship um, while we may not call them class meetings and bands that the Wesley brothers uh, instituted in the Methodist movement early on, uh, a, a significant emphasis upon accountable discipleship where we are shaped and formed in Christian community, uh, um, responding to the sanctifying grace of God, uh, being increasingly transformed by the renewal of our minds, uh, so that we increasingly embody the character of Jesus with, with the heart and passion of Jesus to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Uh, so that, that, that is a major focus of where we're, where we're headed. And we're very clear on that being the mission of the church. We believe as we major in that, the, the other things that are part of seeing the world transformed and all of that will flow naturally from the transformed lives of people who increasingly have the character of Jesus operating in their lives. Amen. Oh, I love hearing all this. Such an exciting time. 
And it just reminds us, all of us need to be in prayer for our friends who are going to be a part of the GMC as they shape this. Um, we are, we are, by the way, in, in prayer for you. I, I want to highlight this. This really, I mean, first off, about, talk about theology. And I loved that emphasis. Of course, this means a move. And we talked about this actually on a podcast that came out recently, um, highlighting my mentor at Perkins School of Theology, Billy Abraham, a move away from the West End quadrilateral. I, I, I don't know if you, you heard that. You can go back and listen to that. So the move towards theological pluralism was accompanied by an embrace of the so-called West End quadrilateral. There's a move away from that. I love that. Secondly, the governance issue. This is huge. Now, like as far as, I don't know if you would say that you're moving away from an itinerant system towards a congregational system. It's maybe some a hybrid between the two, but certainly within itinerant Episcopal denominations, and I don't mean that, I mean that with the sense of Episcopal being the governing system for the right. church, just for my listeners. I know you get that, Keith, but the the idea is like that the ownership and the calling of pastors comes from the top and they're sent as opposed to the church having a buy-in in, in within the Salvation Army and the United Methodist Church. If you were just to pull uh, – People who uh, we talk about their key frustrations, it would be related to the nature of what happens with their their pastor. Maybe they get one they don't like. Maybe they get they lose one that they do like. Um, and as somebody who's been a part of that type of system for so long, um, I grew up in it. I was moved around because of it as a kid and as an adult. Man, uh, it certainly move. It, it can disable local congregations from having buy-in. I had one congregation where I was sent where they were hoping I would come, and I did come. Wasn't I a blessing? And I had another congregation where maybe that, maybe I wasn't their number one choice. I'm sorry to say. I mean, why wouldn't anybody want me to be there? I don't know, but <laughs> it was. And so, like, you have some of these things, or they don't even know I exist, right? And there's something about, like, the, the church accompanying the pastor and buying into the process. Um, I, I, it, it, can you go back to that idea? It's like, do you feel like you're, is it, is it an embrace of congregationalism? Is it a move away from itinerancy, or is it a corrective of a overpower, overly powerful itinerancy? Well, I would I would say certainly it's a corrective. Okay, um, that, that is a major part of this. You know, I, I I think this shows how desperately we need God, and how inadequate we are as human beings. I don't think there is a perfect system for deployment of clergy. Uh, there are advantages and disadvantages of a congregational system. Right. There are advantages and disadvantages of a uh, connectional sent system. Uh, we are committed to uh, being a connectional church. Uh, we are under authority, all of us, including bishops, we're all under authority, uh, and, and we are sent. But we believe that um, the members of local churches ought to have an enhanced role in that discernment process. Okay. In other words, they shouldn't be passive recipients of decisions made on their behalf into which they have had little input. And I don't right. consider filling out a form that is turned in to be the kind of input. They need to be meaningfully involved in the discernment. Now, we have set apart individuals who, and we will in the Global Methodist Church, who will be deployed to the office of bishop. It is on us to select the right women and men to serve in that position. If we don't, then we get the consequences of that. 
okay? So we can, we can design systems all we want. We can write legislation all we want. If you have bad actors placed into a good system, the good system is not going to remedy right. the failures of those bad actors, okay? So how we discern, um, select, elect, and deploy bishops is a huge thing. Um, but, but so that's part of our system that uh, in, increases the involvement of the people of God, the laity, and those who've been set apart as clergy in that process. But, but once the persons are bishops, our system, what I like to refer to the system that we hope will emerge, and this is one of those places where I, I can't speak authoritatively because right. ultimately the decision on this is going to be made by our convening general conference. But my hope is that we will end up with what I like to call a modified sent system. It will still be a sent system where the bishop will appoint the pastor to a local congregation. But as part of that process of the bishop appointing that person, there will have been significant involvement of the laity of that local church in essentially defining, evaluating persons who might be considered and expressing their preferences to inform the bishop. If I were a bishop, and that's not something I've ever aspired to be, nor will I have the opportunity because I, this is my last rodeo. Okay, okay gotcha. <laughs> Once the Global Methodist Church is launched, um, you know, I will I will have fulfilled my, at least at this point, unless God changes my calling, okay? But I'm not aspiring to that office. But if I were ever a bishop entrusted with the really heavy responsibility of determining the primary clergy leadership for a group of people, I would welcome the input and discernment of that group of people they know themselves best. Now, I may see things that they don't see, and I might need to filter that with through them, with them, but I would want their insights. And that's what we're striving to achieve in the system that we're trying to develop so that there is more buy-in from the laity, more empowerment of the laity, but there will be a higher level of commitment on the part of both the laity and the clergy who are serving to this overall process. We also are committed to a longer tenure for pastors. Um, the, uh, you know, right. because the current system, some pastors serve for a number of years, but others are maybe only there for four years, three or four years, and then they're moved on. Um, and, and that occurs sometime for no reason that's related to their current church assignment, but right. because of the need elsewhere. Well, we hope that this system will result in longer tenure and that there will be less of those unexpected calls where both the, the clergy person and the congregation suddenly find out that their life has been turned upside down by a change in pastoral leadership. Wow. What a huge opportunity. It, re it reminds me of... Um... Alexander Hamilton here at the, the early days, like trying to see into the future where these problems might be and to, to get the legislation or the, the policies in place that can implement them. What a task. What will this mean for, um, um, I mean, I guess that the, the, the convening general conference or whatever it might be called will shape the 
how uh, localized this is? Like, will there still be a, a, a Mississippi conference or a Georgia conference? I mean, although those things aren't determined yet, right? Or that that's essentially correct. So I, I think it may be helpful to your your viewers and listeners to to kind of hear the process. Um, uh, we will legally form and launch probably begin operations probably twelve to eighteen months before we have our convening general conference. Okay. So just like in the United Methodist Church and in many other churches, one convening conference cannot bind another convening conference. So the convening general conference really will have the ability to come in and essentially, if they want to, start from scratch. But we have uh, the, the Transitional Leadership Council that I referred to has um, adopted a transitional book of doctrines and discipline. And that, that book of doctrines and discipline will govern our movement from our legal formation until we get to that convening general conference. Gotcha. Now, there are different ways that uh, churches may become part of the, um, of the Global Methodist Church under the protocol. And one of those ways is that an entire conference within the United Methodist Church may be able to vote that they want to leave the United Methodist Church and align with the Global Methodist Church. So if the Mississippi Conference, for example, did that, they would you know, stay together as the Mississippi Conference okay. in the new Global Methodist Church. Um, um, there may be changes down the road in conference boundaries and that sort of thing. I don't know. I mean, we got to get there to know yeah. what's but let's assume that the Mississippi Conference did not vote as a whole to come, but there were a couple hundred churches in Mississippi that yeah. said, we're, we're leaving the United Methodist Church, we're aligning with the Global Methodist Church. Well, during that transitional period, the Transitional Leadership Council will collect churches into annual conferences where they will begin to function and when we get to the convening general conference, by then we will probably have a better picture of where the churches are that are going to be part of the, the new denomination. And we will work through the process of defining boundaries for conferences and that sort of thing. You know, it's, it's yeah, first, if, if, if God had told me in um, the, the uh, January of 2017, what would be involved in this role? I, I know I would have run the other way. I mean, <laughs> I, he, he, he really had to compel me to put my name into this because I knew it was a daunting task. But right. the, the minutia involved in creating a denomination is literally overwhelming. I and, can't imagine. And, then, and then, then when you deal with people who are saying, you know what, I want answers to specific questions. So I know and have some security, but I also at the same time want to have a significant role in defining what that future entity is going to be. Well, you can't have both. You, you know, yeah. I can't give you specific answers and yet leave as much of it as I can to you. So that's why we've adopted this transitional period. I think most people will find what has been adopted in the transitional book of doctrines and discipline to conform to what the majority of people in our movement would desire. But right. the more 
controversial things or the more radical changes, I guess I would say, are things that we have not put into the transitional book of doctrines and discipline. We will let the convening general conference decide yeah. that. Yeah. You can always pass it on to them. You can pass right, it to those right. next. <laughs> it's right. interesting. Um, you know, there's a couple of, 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 of similarities, I think, within my denomination. I think that are come up and we'll close, close up here soon. But the idea of um, often we, I've been one who is publicly and in print and it's even in Salvation Army publications advocated for the Salvation Army to reintroduce, introduce the reinstitute the practice of the traditional Protestant sacraments. Um, you know, the argument is that most of the time people have me, oh, Andy, you're right. You're right from the Bible. And we understand where it's coming from, but it's just too hard to change, too complicated. Mm -hmm. Or mm -hmm. the other thing that comes up, I imagine like the international leadership of the Salvation Army struggles with this. Like they're looking at, okay, we have these diverging, uh, what we call commissioner or bishop, diverging bishops, diverging commissioners in these territories, particularly Western Europe. Well, it's too complicated to really hold people accountable. It's too, like, we just have to hold together and let's not, let's not uh, really apply discipline in this area. But what you've shown over 45 minutes or an hour of us talking is it's worth, I, well, this is my, my assessment. It's worth getting in the fight. And there is a way forward. It, it, there is a way to work through complicated. It's not good enough just to stand back and say, that's a mess, but it is worth it to fight through it. Absolutely. I mean, you know, look at the first century church. There you go. The mission expanded from reaching the Jews to beginning to reach Gentiles and how what they had to navigate in terms of what requirements would be placed upon the Gentiles to be fully Christian. Um, and, and I mean, that's that was a huge conflict, but they managed to navigate it under the power and wisdom of the Holy Spirit, who are we to say that the kinds of things that we're wrestling with are things that God cannot ultimately resolve for us if we will submit ourselves to him? The church is not a democratic institution, okay? <laughs> and so we don't just sit back and take a vote. I was, I've been reading the book of Acts over and over again recently. Someone challenged me. They said when they started their ministry, the first 30 days of their ministry, they read the book of Acts every day for wow. 30 straight days. And so, so I'm way into my ministry, but that was a challenge to me. So I went, I've been back reading through the book of Acts every day. And, you know, the, the important decision of what disciple was going to replace Judas amongst the 12, you know, they, they, they obviously went through a selection process and they, they narrowed it down to Matthias and, and Barsabbas. And, and, and then, they, then they, they submitted to the casting of lots. Now, can you imagine? But, but they had enough confidence that God would be in the decision. They had raised up two individuals both of which they felt were fully qualified. And yeah. then they said, God, we're going to put this in your hands. And this is the way we believe you're going to manifest it for us. Um, you know, we are, we, we've chosen the name Global Methodist Church intentionally. Now, there are those who question our choice of names because they're, they're hearkening back to the political battles of the 50s and the globalization movement and all of that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with that. It is a statement 
that we intend to be a church for the entire world and that we intend to be a church that is impacted by Christians around the world. Um, uh, As you, you know, I recently made a trip to Nairobi, Kenya, where I met with 16 African leaders um, their, their ministry, their context, the issues they have to confront on a daily basis are very different from the issues that we have to face here in the United States. Uh, and it is hard work to listen and to navigate and to try to understand what each other's struggles are and to then enter into a season of prayer when we seek the mind of Christ for how we navigate that. But it is I think that's the work we're called to do. And so I would challenge your colleagues in the Salvation Army that it is not okay just to say, well, we're going to let each person do what is right in their own eyes, but rather that we are called in the midst of this to humbly submit ourselves to that season of prayer and discernment, um, to our searching of the scriptures and and to finding the way we go to forward together in unity Amen. because we're under the under the lordship of Christ. Amen. Beautiful. The, my friends this this podcast is called More to the Story. And the reason we use that name is there's there's a theological reason there's more than just getting saved there's also the process of sanctifying grace that we get to experience. But also there's more of this story just saying oh there's liberal and conservative Methodists. You see there's much more to it and Keith has helped us into that. But we're also curious Keith is there more to the story of Keith Boyette? Sure. Um when when I am not doing this sort of thing, um uh, I enjoy time with family. I have my my wife, I have three children. I have four grandchildren with an additional one on the way to be born. Okay. That's huge. I also, I love the outdoors. I love kayaking. I love, um, you know, working in the woods around my house. Uh, I've just been moving wood that's been split. So I'm a little sore. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I enjoy that physical activity. Um, I am refreshed and renewed by community, by relationships. Um, by the communion of saints. So I love reading. I'm always reading. Um, so there's much more there, to be this battle. Let me tell you. <laughs> amen. Well, I'm glad you have that. I'm sure it's nice to go back out that woodshed a little bit uh, when you're dealing with some of these battles. <laughs> yeah, it's cathartic. <laughs> Thank you, Keith, so much for your time. It's a blessing and know of our prayers for you uh, and in all of those um, in the Wesleyan Covenant Association and the coming Global Methodist Church. Thank you, Andy. It's been a real joy and delight to be part of this today.